23 years ago this August, I was a freshman in high school. I went to a, a Catholic high school in Kansas City, Rockhurst. It was run by the Jesuits. And on the first few days of school, they told us to memorize this prayer, which I, I did have memorized. I don't anymore, so I'm going to read it. Lord Jesus, teach me to be generous. Teach me to serve you as you deserve, to give and not to count the costs, to fight and not to heed the wounds, to toil and not to seek for rest, to labor, not to ask for reward, save that of knowing that I do your will. Amen. It's a beautiful prayer. It was written by St. Ignatius of Loyola, who founded the Jesuits. And there's always been one line in that prayer that stood out to me. And uh, as the years have gone on, I found it to be both inspiring and terrifying at the same time. To give and not to count the costs. It's inspiring because to serve the Lord in this manner requires a heroic degree of trust. Trust that God will provide. Trust that God is enough. And it's terrifying because it's so counterintuitive. In virtually any other venture in life, to not count the cost is simply wrong. It's negligent. If a parish doesn't count the cost, the expenses and the donations coming in, it will get in debt and it will be in big trouble, maybe even go under. If a business doesn't count the costs, it will eventually go under. If a family doesn't count the costs, they will get in debt, maybe declare bankruptcy, maybe losing a house. Bad things happen when we don't count the costs, except in the case of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. The message of our readings today is that Jesus wants this heroic trust, not just from a few great saints, not just from his apostles, but from any disciple, any follower, any believer. He wants us all to serve him generously to such an extent that we give without counting the cost. So in our first reading, we see Elijah, who is the prophet in Israel, the last one, appointing, calling his successor, Elisha. And Elisha responds to this call. He throws his cloak on him. It's a gesture of saying, you're my heir. Elisha responds with this heroic trust in God's providence. He slaughters his oxen. He destroys his plowing equipment, cooks the oxen, serves the food to his people, and then leaves with Elijah. And this Elijah is trusting that God has truly called him through Elijah, that God will provide for him. He doesn't need a backup plan. There's no turning back because God doesn't make mistakes. You know, the world might tell Elisha, hey, sell your oxen, sell your equipment, then you have a nice security blanket if this prophet thing doesn't work out. That's not what Elisha does. Now, I could imagine someone asking, all right, is the message of this first reading that every believer needs to sell all that he or she has, needs to slaughter his oxen, so to speak, or destroy their plowing equipment? No. But in every generation, some people are. And if we are called, we need to answer with the trust that God will provide and that God is enough. And this message is clarified and reinforced in our gospel. Now, there's a lot going on in this gospel. So let's zero in on the 
part that I imagine sounds most shocking. Jesus calls an unnamed individual to follow him. And this unnamed individual has a pretty good excuse why to delay following Jesus. Let me first bury my father. Jesus, however, doesn't agree and says, let the dead bury their dead. I mean, even Elijah allowed Elisha to go say goodbye to his parents. Jesus won't even let this man bury his father. What gives? I think there's, there's two things we could say. One, our gospel says Jesus is resolutely determined to go to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem where he'll be crucified. So this man, if he's going to follow Jesus while he walks the earth, it's now or never. All right? Jesus is calling him now. Secondly, I think the principle behind what Jesus is saying is this, that if we're going to follow him, we need to be all in. We need to seek first his kingdom and everything else second. And if a conflict erupts between following Christ, seeking the kingdom, and family ties, then even then, we still must seek first the kingdom. And the reason is this, the very purpose of our life the reason we are here is to know, love, and serve God. And we will never find the lasting happiness that we seek apart from, from God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even really good things in life, even the very best natural goods like family, if they pose a conflict to following Christ, must be set aside. Christ, in this gospel, is asking this unnamed individual to trust that God is enough, that God knows what he's doing. He's asking him to give and not count the cost. Now, here's the good news. For most of us, family will not present such a conflict. There are some for who it does. I mean, you occasionally hear stories of that, but in general, Family will not present such conflict. So if that's the case, what is the message for us in this gospel? What does it look like to give and not count the cost? Well, it looks different for different people, typically. Maybe for some of us, giving without counting the cost means returning to the sacrament of confession, being generous in trusting that God's mercy is more than enough to wipe away our sins. Or... For others, the Lord may be calling us to give of our most precious and irreplaceable commodity, our time. Perhaps he's calling us to enter into prayer more deeply and wants us to spend more time with him. Perhaps he's calling us to serve others more deeply, again, costing us our time. It might mean any number of things. You know, I couldn't help but think of giving without counting the cost on Friday, which was the solemnity of the most sacred heart of Jesus. It was also uh, the day the Supreme Court uh, overturned Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. You know, it was this victory that was 50 years in the making, and the reason it happened um, was there were countless people who were willing to give without counting the cost. All those people who every January hopped in a bus and went to D.C. to the March for Life, to march in rough winter weather very often, to witness to life, who built that event up from a very small thing to something that, by the time I was attending in the 2000s, was hundreds of thousands of people. Those who started, worked, or volunteered at crisis pregnancy centers, those who prayed and wrote letters, who worked in 
judicial and political spheres, those who spoke out on the sanctity of human life, even when it meant backlash from others, those who spoke out even when a victory in the Supreme Court seemed a pipe dream at best, spoke out even when they were discouraged. And we still do have ample opportunity to give without counting the cost in the pro-life movement to support crisis pregnancy centers, right? I mean, we can, and uh, part of being pro-life is providing love and support to women experiencing difficult or untimely pregnancies. And these centers certainly need our support now more than ever. And then, of course, we need to speak out on the sanctity of human life. And we need to do so with love. St. Paul, in our second reading, he says that the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you go on biting and devouring one another, beware that you are not consumed by one another. When we speak the truth on the sanctity of human life, we must do it out of love. We must love those we disagree with enough to speak the truth. But then the harder part of that is if, we, if what is returned to us for speaking the truth is backlash, opposition, hostility, we must respond to that with kindness. There's a, a story, I, I may have shared this once before, it's about a seminary professor of mine, Dr. Harvath. She, was, um, she had a PhD in psychology and was a licensed counselor. And before she came to the seminary, she worked in, um, she did pro-life work. She once told a story about how she was appointed to a Missouri State Commission, a bipartisan commission. And the idea was to get five or six pro-life women, five or six pro-choice women on this commission to work on, uh, to work on issues around women's health. And she said the commission didn't accomplish much. There was hostility on both sides in the group from the start. But every once in a while, Dr. Harvath would go out for coffee. She would make a coffee run. And uh, her instinct was to only ask those pro-life women for coffee, but she fought against that, and she offered it to everybody. And there was one pro-choice woman who took her up on coffee a few times. So she would go and pick up the coffee and return. Simple gesture. Years later, Dr. Harvath was at a pro-life conference, and that pro-choice woman came up to her. She was pro-choice no more. What began her intellectual conversion, if you will, was a pro-life woman who extended a simple act of kindness to her, buying her a cup of coffee, uh, speaking to her kindly, and, and, and treating her not as an ideologue, but as her neighbor. My point is this. There are many who are intensely opposed to the church when it comes to the issue of life. We are called to love those who disagree with us. Part of loving our neighbor is being willing to speak the truth when the opportunity presents itself. To, to run the risk of backlash and opposition, but the more difficult part is when we do face opposition, hostility, to respond with kindness, to love our neighbor enough to speak the truth in charity, and then react hostility with kindness, is truly to give and not count the cost. Today, as we prepare to receive our Lord in Holy Communion, let us ask him to grant us the grace to truly seek first his kingdom, to heroically trust him, and to give and not count the cost.